0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen, amen. Good morning, Crosspoint. If you have a Bible, open it to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. As you're finding that... Many of us during this time have been wondering, this has been kind of a national, maybe even an international question that is being asked during these these strange times that we are living in is what will life be like on the other side? How will this pandemic, how will this shelter at home time change us? We watch the news and we hear reports about how this will forever change the way we think about social distancing about being together, maybe riding an elevator together, personal hygiene, washing our hands, all those sorts of things. But I want us to think more spiritually about how this will change us. And there seems to be a kind of tone when people ask that question as if on the other side of this we will we will have lost something. That, that that life on the other side will be, be will be less than what it was before, but I think actually we have an opportunity as a church for the inverse to be true, that life on the other side of this can actually be sweeter and better because of the ways that the Lord is changing us and working fruit in our lives during this time. And one of the burdens that I have for my own soul and for the life of this church is that God would produce in us when we have a little bit more extra time, at least most of us. I know some of you are actually more busy than you were before, especially doctors and nurses and healthcare workers, you're you're more busy than you were before. But for many of us, we might have some extra time on our hands. And my burden for us, for the majority of us, is that we not waste this time, but that we use this, this divine pause button that God has hit to work in us more prayerfulness and more thankfulness. Wouldn't that be a wonderful fruit on the other side of this that God would work more thankfulness? And prayerfulness in our hearts. And so for that, we're gonna look at one of Paul's prayers in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I want you to put a thumb in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and before we read that, before we work our way through Paul's prayer for the church in Thessalonica, I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, just a few verses briefly, to give you a kind of motivation for why this is so important, for why this is on my heart. So let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, and then we're going to go to our main text. In 2 Thessalonians. This is what Paul prays in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, or this is what he says in chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So the situation was so bad, Paul says in verse 8, that they were despairing of life itself. Indeed, verse 9, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But look at, look at the sovereign good hand of God behind all of this. It. the next part of that, verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So even the point that Paul felt that he was at, the point of despair where he wanted to die was actually brought about by God's sovereign hand to produce in him more reliance on God who raises the dead. In verse 10 it says, He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now listen to verse 11. Here's the logic. Here's the sort of basis of, of my burden that I want us to carry into our main text in 2 Thessalonians. This is what verse 11 says. Paul says, You also, he's speaking to the church now, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So he's saying that the situation was so bad that we wanted to die, and all of this was part of God's plan to make us not rely on ourselves, but to rely on God who raises the dead and in order for more of that to come about in our lives, for us to, to, to accomplish what God has intended for us to accomplish in our reliance on him, Paul is asking for, he's soliciting the prayers of the church in Corinth, and he's saying, help us by prayer so that many people will give thanks. So there's, there's just two, two truths about prayer here from this passage that I want us to take into our passage in 2 Thessalonians, is that God ordains prayer as one of the means by which he delivers his people. So he says, I'm going to deliver them. And the way he brings it about is through the prayers of his people praying for other, for his people. And then secondly, God has determined to bring glory to himself by people praying for one another. That's the second part of verse 11. He's saying that, Paul is saying that many will give thanks to God. In other words, give glory to God because of the blessing that was granted to us by God because of prayer. So in verse 11 there, Paul just weaves a tight loop, a a theology of prayer that we need it even though God is sovereign and God is glorified through our prayer. So with that, let's take Paul's reasoning into our text in 2 Thessalonians. Now, we're going to work our way through this, and I I see in this first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, I see three reasons for thanks and three reasons for, three ways to pray. So three reasons for thanks and three ways to pray, and in the middle of those two things, Paul is going to give us a theological foundation that will undergird his reasons for thanks and his ways for praying. And as I was preparing for this passage, this message this week, I was so helped by Don Carson's short little book called Praying with Paul. That might be a wonderful book for you to order off of Amazon by Don Carson called Praying with Paul. And that would be just a great way to improve your prayer life to pray the Bible back to God. So let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 starting in verse 3. Enduring. Okay, so in these, in these two verses here, at the beginning, we see Paul give us three reasons for thankfulness. Three reasons that he is grateful for what he sees going on in the life of the church in Thessalonica. And, and these three reasons are this. First, he tells us that he's grateful, he's thankful that they're, they're, they're abundantly growing in faith. He sees the situation that they're facing, and we, we know in just a few verses, he says they're, they're, they're enduring some persecution, some affliction, some trial, and yet in, in the midst of this time of strain and stress, he sees the church growing abundantly. Their faith is growing, and I, along with the pastors and elders, have been so encouraged just to hear reports of ways that people are growing, that they are pressing into the Lord. To see examples of this in the church during this time of difficulty and stress internationally is such a pastoral encouragement. And I just want to say I'm thankful to God for the many reports, the many evidences of God's grace and growing faith that I see in your lives. Praise God for that. So that's, that's the first reason, the, the abundantly growing faith that Paul sees in the church and, and that I see in, in you and in many of you. And then secondly, he says, they're increasing love for one another. So look, look again at the second part of verse 3. He says, because your faith is growing abundantly, we just talked about that, and the love of everyone, of you for one another, is increasing. So here's this strange providence. Here's this wonderful kind of silver lining, is that as we're not able to gather together, this has made us, I think many of us, acutely aware, maybe when we had kind of forgotten, how important it is to be part of a local church, how important it is to have relationships with people that we gather with, and how much we miss one another. And that that, that serves To actually increase our love for one another. To desire to be with one another. On the other side of this, dear ones, let's not lose that. Let's not let that fall off. Paul thanks God for the increasing love that he sees in the church. And may that be so among Crosspoint. Listen to what Don Carson says about this particular point of this passage He says about life in the local church and this increasing love for one another, how important it is. He says, and I quote, the local church is made up of people who are varied as can be, rich and poor, learned and unlearned, sophisticated and unsophisticated, extrovert and introvert, and everything in between. Amen. That's certainly the case here. The only thing that holds such people together Is their shared allegiance to Jesus Christ, their devotion to Him, stemming from His indescribable love. For them. Oh, friends, let me just pause there and say that's a beautiful description of a church. A church shouldn't be a group of people who all live in the same neighborhood or come from the same background or who otherwise would be together in fellowship even if they didn't share their faith in Jesus. But the beauty of the local church is that it's a group of people from every tribe and tongue and background and every side of every street that are there together because of Jesus, not because of any earthly thing that draws them together, that is a powerful aroma to the world. And that's the type of love that we see in the local church. Then Carson continues, he says, That is why it is always wretchedly pathetic when a local church becomes a cauldron of resentments and nurtured bitterness. When Christians lose sight of their first and primary allegiance, they will squabble. When social or racial or economic or temperamental uniformity seems more important than basking in the love of God in Christ Jesus, idolatry has reared its blasphemous head. Amen to that. And let me pause here and just insert a kind of contextual thing that we're going through right now. I would say I would add to that list that Carson mentions is that when disagreements about how maybe politically or culturally we should be handling this pandemic seem to crowd out or usurp our love for one another because we're bound together in the gospel, then that is a rearing of this blasphemous, idolatrous head in our own hearts. Friends, we're going to have different opinions. And I think one of the things that I'm thinking about pastorally is that as we approach life back to normal, whatever that's going to look like, and as we approach gathering back together, there's going to be different opinions. And friends, this is, this is going to be a challenge on the unity of the church, on our love for one another. We, we should have opinions. God has given us a mind, and we're going to have different opinions. But as we share those opinions, as we post those opinions on social media, Friends, I, I implore us, I exhort us to be careful about how passionate we are about our opinions, which are often just our opinions and really aren't based on anything of any value of expertise, but just our opinions. Let's be cautious about how passionate we are about those things and how it can eclipse our passion for one another. But then Carson continues, and he ends on a positive note. He says, but... We may put this positively. I love this. When Christians do grow in their love for each other for no other reason than because they are loved by Jesus Christ and love him in return, they grow, that growing love is an infallible sign of grace in their lives. And so Paul is thankful for this. He sees this in the life of the church and I see this in the life of this church, but let's stir it up. Let's increase it more and let's not waste this time where we have this kind of pause button hit in our lives and let's ask the Lord to grow our love for one another. And then the third reason that Paul gives thanks is he sees their steadfastness in persecution and afflictions. Look at verse verse four. He says, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. We don't know exactly what's going on there, but apparently the church in Thessalonica was being, was being persecuted and afflicted by some people who were persecuting them apparently for their faith. And Paul is, sees that, and he sees how they are enduring in the midst of this trial, and he is boasting about the the perseverance, the the steadfastness of the church in Thessalonica to other churches. So so what is Paul doing here? He's, he's, He's pointing out, he's using it as an opportunity to give thanks to God for the rootedness, for the steadfastness of the church in Thessalonica. The point is, is that Paul is giving thanks to the example of this church that is setting for other churches. That should be motivation for us to be a kind of positive example to other Christians so that our lives might be used to to encourage, to embolden, to to fasten maybe Christians that are weak or trembling in some way, fasten them to, to the goodness of God. So so just an application before we we move on to verses 5 through 10. What what does this have to do with our praying? Well, as we we pray, I think we should pray for one another in this way. Lord, pray for for, for Crosspoint to grow in faith. Pray for us to love one another. Pray for us to stay steadfast in our trials. And so I think one thing, one sweet fruit that might come out of this pandemic is that it would increase the biblical intentionality of the average member in Crosspoint to pray for one another in this way. So here's just one thing that you can do. You can, if you're a member, you have, you should have one of our member directories. You can find it online. And you can just go through this and you can see the faces and the names. And instead of just praying, Lord, help them, get, help them have a good, you know, pray Paul's language for them. Lord, I pray that this dear brother or sister that I may not even know very well would grow abundantly in their faith that their love would increase and increase my love for them and Lord if they're going through any any trial right now produce in them steadfastness oh if we would just develop that one one spiritual habit just think about the the fruit that would abound for years to come if we were to take that take that one thing and pray the Bible back to God And we would give glory to God for it. Oh, what a fruit, what a sweet fruit that would be as a result of this time of trial. Okay, so there's Paul's three reasons for thanks. Let's look at his his, his theological motivation for all of this in his prayer. And it's what he sees in the life of these Christians, this kind of eternal posture that he sees in them. So let me read verses 5 through 10. This is Paul's theological motivation, I think, for his thankfulness and for his prayer. He says in verse 5, this is evidence. And what he's talking about when he says this is evidence, he's talking about their steadfastness, their increasing faith, their, their, their love for one another. those three things that we just mentioned. This, these things, these good fruits, is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So Paul is, is now turning his attention from the temporary situation to the eternity that it's pointing to. And then he says in verse 7, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they, verse 9, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So what is Paul doing here in verses five through 10? Like he does all throughout his letters. In fact, like the whole New Testament does. It takes, it looks at a temporary situation and it points us to eternity. And Paul is saying the reason that my thanks is so important and the reason that it will endure and the reason that I'm going to pray for you in a moment is because these days are not all that there is to life. These 80 or 90 years is not what life is about. It's preparing us for an eternity. And he's saying, look, he's really dividing all humanity into two camps. Those who obey Jesus and those who do not obey Jesus. And he's saying that those who obey Jesus will be vindicated. God will bring them safely home. The trials that they're going through now will be vindicated. It will all be worth it. And he will bring Jesus to rescue them from the trial. And those who do not obey Jesus, they will be judged. They will stand before him and they will receive the just judgment that they deserve for their unbelief and rejection of God the Son. What's Paul's point in these verses? He's saying that justice will come. It will all be sorted out. Right will be done. Those who obey Jesus will be vindicated. It will all be worth it. And those who do not will receive vengeance. And how will those that are vindicated, how will they be vindicated? Not because God looks at them and he sees that they hung in there and so he's gonna reward them for their spiritual toughness. They will be vindicated because they trusted in Jesus. And they, when they trust in Jesus, what happens? Jesus perfect life. Jesus sinless obedience to God that is laid down on the cross, has consumed, it's taken up, it's removed, it's satisfied God's vengeance. And so when God looks on a person who is obeying Jesus, who's believing Jesus, He's not removing punishment from them because they've done a good job. He's removing punishment. He's vindicating them because their punishment has been received by Jesus on the cross once and for all. And so on that day, the life that we're now living after we're trusting in Jesus is in response to the fact that Jesus has bore God's vengeance, God's wrath, for us. And so on that day, all the trials that we're going through are just causing us to identify with the one that we trusted in when we first believed. And because we've trusted in him, because he bore God's wrath, because he took God's vengeance on the cross and satisfied it and removed it for our disobedience, God will look on us and he will bring us safely home. That's what it means to be a Christian, friends. Not to trust in ourselves, not to trust in our own strength, but to trust in Jesus who bore the affliction of God for us. That's Paul's point here. Friends, are you trusting in Jesus? Because if you are not, and Paul says, You eventually on that day will suffer. You will bear the wrath of God. And these verses are just poignantly evangelistic. Verses 5 through 10 are dividing all of us into two groups either those that are obeying Jesus, trusting in Him, putting their hope in Him, and because of that new hope that's in us, walking in. in in straining, striving obedience to follow Him and honor Him and love Him and grow in Him, or those who are not obeying Jesus, not trusting in the Lord, but trusting in themselves. And for those people, there will be a punishment. There will be something far greater than a pandemic. There'll be something far greater than a virus that can kill the body. There will be an eternal judgment, that will separate them from the Lord forever and ever. And so what's what's the truth here that that I think we should see and understand? The truth is that the temporary trials that we're facing are meant to point us to eternal judgment. Every trial, every earthquake, every storm, every tragedy, every pandemic, every virus, every plague, in some mysterious way or another, is a kind of mercy of God to call the world to repentance. Now, I want to be careful here because there's two mistakes that we often make when thinking about trials and plagues and pandemics and how it relates to judgment. The first mistake that we make is that we draw a straight line from a current contemporary tragedy or plague or virus. We draw a straight line from that to God's judgment. What I'm thinking of is, you know, some televangelist that maybe comes on TV after Hurricane Katrina and says that this is God's judgment on that particular part of the country because of, you know, casinos or gambling. That's a, that's a, that's a, 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 that is a straight line that you just cannot support biblically. Because that's to, to, that's to kind of siphon off a, one group of people as this particular bad group of sinners. I mean, if God were to act like that, to draw a straight line, he, he, would, he would have to take us all out. Psalm 130 says, Lord, if you were to mark our iniquities, who could stand? No, friends, that's a, that's a straight line that is overly simplistic. The other mistake we make is not drawing a straight line, but drawing no line at all. And just thinking, oh, well, the world's broken, and God's good, and, you know, in the end, he'll say, I don't know what's going on. I mean, just, you know, I just, this is just the way things are. Just kind of hold on. I don't, know how, I, don't know, I don't know what God's doing. Just there's no line at all. We either draw a straight line, which is an error, or we draw no line at all. But the correct way to think about temporary trials and their relation to eternal judgment is to know that God's ways are mysterious and inscrutable, and He is involved in everything. Friends, there is a God-drawn line between every trial and final judgment. And the point, even though it's mysterious, and it's not necessarily a reaction to to the temporary sinfulness of a person in that situation, but regardless, it is meant to be a gracious call to repentance because there's something more severe than physical trial or even physical death, and that is judgment. Listen to Jesus' reasoning here in Luke chapter 13. Jesus, I think, here clarifies this for us. In Luke chapter 13, verses one through five. Let me read. This passage, it says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So evidently there was a group of people that Pilate killed because they were offering some sacrifices. It upset Pilate, and he killed them. So he mingled their blood with their sacrifices. And he answered them, verse 2, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or, verse 4, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What is Jesus doing here? He's taking two cultural events that everybody that was listening to him would have been familiar with the mass slaughtering of these Galileans for some sacrifice that they were doing that upset the governor and this seemingly random tragedy where this tower fell fell and killed 18 people. And Jesus is saying... Don't draw a straight line. Don't think that this is some direct line, that these were really bad people, and so God is in an acute sort of way causing the tower to fall on them because they're worse than you. So yeah, but you're okay because the tower didn't fall on you. Or Pilate didn't kill you for your your pagan practice or your your ritual. Jesus is saying, no, no. Don't draw that direct line uh, 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 point, conclusion. He's saying... God has purposes. And one of God's mysterious purposes is, is that when things happen like this, it should be a wake up call to all of us. They weren't worse than you, but in God's mercy, you're still alive. So let this bring in you a humility and let it be a wake up call to you. Let it be ammonia under your nostrils, dear one. And let it cause you to repent or get serious with the Lord wherever you may be. That's Jesus' point. And I think that's Paul's point in verses five through 10 that there's coming a day when we will all stand before the Lord. And whatever you're going through now, let it be like a smelling salt underneath your, your spiritual nose and wake you up to press into God or believe in him for the first time. And then he concludes with three ways to pray. And this, I want to encourage us as a church to pray for one another in this way. Let me read verses 11 and 12, Second Thessalonians. He says, to this end, so for this purpose, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> so this is packed, packed full of truth here. In these two verses, Paul gives us three ways to pray. And, and before we we look at these, I want to be careful here. I want to make sure that you know that as we work through this, in fact, this whole sermon, that I'm not, I'm not, I hope I'm not coming across as scolding us. I, I just want to orient us to Paul's priorities, to help us improve, to help us grow in grace. There's this famous Puritan English pastor named Charles Simeon. He's one of my heroes. Uh, He preached faithfully in his church, even though his church resisted. His leadership for like thirty years they would they, they did some crazy things to actually resist his leadership. They would actually lock the pews and there was a strange kind of bar that would go in between the pews of the church that he pastored and so they would lock the pews it was as a kind of like a, a block to get into the aisle so that visitors couldn't come to the church. There was all sorts of strange things going on there in his church at that time. But Simeon, for decades, even despite the resistance of his people, continued to preach the gospel faithfully and preach the Bible faithfully. And eventually, it changed and warmed and softened the hearts of his people. And it became a wonderfully vibrant gospel ministry. And a biographer of Simeon, I say all that to say, that one of the things that marked Simeon's ministry is that his, this is what this biographer said, that he was free, he was, his preaching, his teaching was devoid of the scolding tone you know, you know that tone that preachers can get when they wanna, they're they trying to make a point and it's like they just beat you up with guilt? <laughs> Friends, hear me. I don't, I'm not scolding us at all. I see so much of this in our church, but the, the emphaticness with which I, I think I'm saying these things and I'm seeing these things in Paul's prayer is meant not to scold us, but to encourage us, to motivate us. Like a, like a football coach at halftime saying, come on, let's get back out there and let's do it. Let's hit somebody or let's pray for somebody is what is what i mean to say so let's look at three ways to pray that paul mentions in these two these two verses he says first that we should pray that god would make us worthy of our calling that's what he prays for the thessalonians he says in verse 11 to this end we also pray for you that god that our god make may make you worthy of his calling now this is this is really fascinating when, when Paul says "calling," he's not talking about our vocation or the, the sort of the job that we are called to do, in the sense of how we're gifted. But but calling, in this sense, is speaking ultimately about salvation, the the gospel call of the Lord. Our hearts are dead. This this is how the gospel. This is how a person comes to faith. Our hearts are dead, in sin. That's clear from the scriptures, Colossians chapter two, Ephesians chapter two, and God by His Holy Spirit calls us. He he causes the truth, the news of the gospel, to call out to our dead hearts. It hits our dead hearts. As Romans 1 verse 16 and 17 says, the call of the gospel, the words of the gospel, the news of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and it awakens us to salvation. It awakens us to rebirth. We are called to salvation. And Paul is saying here, he's praying that these people would walk in a way worthy of their calling, walk in a way worthy of the salvation that they have received from God. Which is an interesting thought that Paul would say, be worthy of what God has destined you to be and guaranteed you to be. Let me, read you, let me read to you Romans chapter 8. And I know we, we reference Romans all the time, especially Romans chapter 8. But it's, it's so good. And I want, you to take, I want you to see Paul's logic in Romans 8. And I want you to mix it with this idea that Paul is praying for the people in the church to be worthy of what God has already guaranteed to bring about in their life. So let me read Romans 8, verse, verse 28. Familiar verses, I'm sure. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, awakened to the beauty of the gospel and saved. That's what he means by that. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, if you're a Christian, God has predetermined that you will become like Jesus. That you will be like him. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen to verse 30. Listen to the airtight Guarantee of verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. In other words, he awakened us to salvation. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. So he's saying that our future glorification is so certain that he can speak of it as already happening. So, But you take Romans chapter 8 and this airtight guarantee of Romans chapter 8. And how is it going to come about? Through the prayers of Paul praying for these people to become worthy of the calling that they were called with. In other words, Paul is praying that God would do and produce what he's guaranteed to produce in the lives of his people. Do you see that? Do You see, Paul is not wrestling over this tension here between God's sovereignty and our responsibility to pray. Paul's just laying it out there. He's the same one that wrote Romans 8, and he also wrote 2 Thessalonians, and he sees no tension. God is in control, and the way God works out his control is he uses the prayers of his saints for one another to produce worthiness, godliness in them. So as we pray for one another, friends, let's rather than just praying God to help them just do well and not get sick and have a good day, Lord, make the people of Crosspoint worthy of your calling, produce in them, Lord, bring to pass what you have guaranteed will be in their life. Oh, what a way to pray for one another. Here's just a kind of test. Here's just to, to search our own hearts. You know, when somebody asks you, how, how are your kids doing? Our first instinct is maybe to say, oh, well, you know, they're doing, they're doing well. They got into such and such school, and Johnny or Susie's got a job now, and they're, they're living away, and, they, man, they're doing great. All those are wonderful things. They're not bad things. But how often do we think m- more primarily about how they're doing spiritually? When somebody, when somebody asks the question, oh, how's, how's your kid doing? Man, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful about the ways that I see them growing in the grace of the Lord and walking worthy of their calling." Or when somebody asks about another person in the church, oh, he's, he's, he's doing good, he got a new job, you know, They moved into a new house, whatever. All those, are, all those are wonderful things, I'm not dogging that. But I, I want us to see the priority of Paul here, he's saying, let's pray for one another that we walk worthy of the calling that God has guaranteed will come to fruition in our life. We should pray that way for our families. We should pray that way for our church. The context here is not biological family, it's spiritual family, it's the local church. It's a model for how we should pray for one another. Okay, second way that Paul prays is that God would fulfill our desire for good works by faith. Now, verse 11. The, the, the wording of verse 11 is, 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 is a kind of like pretzel, and you have, to, you have to read verse 11 slowly, but when you read verse 11 slowly and you think it through, there's gold in, in this verse. Paul says in verse 11, to this end, we also pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. We just looked at that. And now look at the second half, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So Paul is saying one way that I'm praying for you, church, is that God will fulfill all of your good intentions and actually cause those good intentions to actually grow feet so that they will actually produce real obedience and not just good, good intentions in your life and that he would bring us about through faith by his power. So Paul is praying for the thoughts that cross our minds, the good intentions that we have to do something good, that it wouldn't stay there in our head like a little bird that flies over us that never lands, but that it would actually land, that it would grow feet, and it would walk out of our mind, down into our heart, and through our hands, and that we would be people of obedience and action. That's what Paul is praying here. Oh, that's so beautiful. Paul is praying essentially what he wrote to the Philippians and Philippians 2, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We should pray that way for one another. So this is a valid prayer. We go through this member director and we pray. We come across a person, and we say, Lord, I pray that the good intentions that they have in their heart and every mind that has been regenerated by the Spirit of God and called unto salvation, is the, we have the mind of Christ. We have these good thoughts. Lord, I pray for my brother and sister that those good intentions, those resolves actually produce obedience and action in their life. That's how we should pray for one another. And then finally, the third way that he says we should pray for one another is that Christ be glorified. In us and us in him by his grace. Look at verse 12 and we conclude. He says, I'm praying you'd be worthy of your calling, if for God to fulfill these things in you. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. That's the end. Friends, that's the end of all things. That's the point that everything is pointing to, that Jesus would be glorified in us, but also that we would be, this is beautiful. I mean, this is worth meditating on. Not only that Jesus would be glorified in us, but that we would be glorified in him, that together as we're united by Christ, Friends, we will, we will bring glory to his name and we will enjoy that glory with him as we are in him according to the grace of God, to the praise of God forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's the point of the Christian life. And so Paul is praying that whatever we're going through, however, we're however enduring whatever trial we're facing, that the people in this local church, this is the way they should pray for one another, that God would give them grace to walk worthy, to fulfill every good desire, so that something bigger would happen in their lives, bigger than them getting out on the other end of this trial with some sort of relative comfort. But the bigger and greater thing is that Christ be glorified in them and they in him. That's the ultimate goal of the Christian life. And that's how we should pray for one another. Oh, friends, I'm convicted, but I'm chastened and I'm encouraged. I want this to give life to my prayers as I pray for my family, my children, our church, that I would pray in this way. And God's word doesn't return void. So when we pray God's word back to him, oh, friends, it makes our prayers fly. And God produces his beautiful fruit in the life of the church. So I conclude, friends, by just saying let's not waste this pandemic. Let, let's, what's life going to be like on the other side? As the world wrings their hands and says, oh my gosh, we're not going to be able to all get together in a football stadium. As if that really means anything. But what if the church said, oh, what is life going to look like on the other side? It's going to produce in us more thankfulness and more prayerfulness. And on the other side of this is going to be deeper, richer godliness in the life of the church. And we're going to be more poised for the glory of God and the end of all things. Because the church is more beautiful and more ready to meet Jesus. Oh, what a sweet fruit that would be as a result of this time. Isn't that just the way God works to take what the enemy means for evil and to work it for his good? Hebrews 13, verse 20 20 and 21 says this, and I end. And this is my prayer for us as we, Lord willing, strive to implement this. That we don't scurry out of this saying, okay, I'm going to try harder to pray longer. Certainly, I'm I'm not dogging resolve. Of course, we need to have that but undergirding any energy that comes out of this needs to be the grace, the grace of God. Listen to Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you. In other words, help you pray this way for one another. for People, to pray. man, equip you, that we would pray for one another in this way equip us, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this passage, for this chastening, convicting, encouraging example of prayer and thankfulness. While the world wrings their hands, let the church resolve to grow in godliness and prayer and thankfulness for one another and glory to you. Thank you. Thank you for your sovereign grace. Thank you for your kindness to us. Make us more like your son Jesus. And let that be a sweet, sweet fruit on the other side of this for your glory and for our joy.